I'm interested in, in the idea of inclination and how to think about the idea of inclinations. And let's say there might be two ways of, of doing that. One might ask whether or not inclinations in, in, in terms of mental dispositions, in terms of mental causation, in heavily inverted commas, are something other than reasons on the one hand and causes on the other, when I'm inclined to do something, is is there not something more at stake than a reason for my action, and on the other hand, a, a cause of my action? Another way of thinking about inclinations is thinking about them in terms of modality, and thinking about them as perhaps possessing a peculiar or a particular form of modality that can't be reduced to traditional ideas of, of necessitation, first of all, but also possibility. Now it's the um, it's the second it's the second way of asking questions concerning inclination, which interests me here. But I'll 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 tell you why as I proceed. We commonly talk of being inclined to do something, of being disposed to do something, in the sense of having a tendency, propensity, or as the Scottish philosophers used to say, a proneness to do it. A person may be mathematically inclined, inclined to lose his temper when challenged, or when nervous to turn his ring on his finger. Such talk indicates more than a disposition in the sense of an ability or capacity. I may have a capacity to do a particular thing, I may even have honed a skill in doing it, but this does not entail that I have the tendency or inclination to do it. It wouldn't be difficult to find a person skilled in her work without an inclination to work. Of course, I may not be inclined to work because I do not like that work, as opposed to the mathematician who, for solving mathematical problems, has a capacity that gives her great pleasure when realised. Still, there seems to be more in an inclination than a capacity to do something I like. At issue beyond any mere liking is an attraction. When genuinely inclined to do something, I'm attracted or drawn to it. We might describe this attraction as a matter of having a pre-reflective and perhaps pre-voluntary orientation to that thing. An inclination thus understood does not just make an action easy, as does a capacity, but it is rather a veritable principle of action, something that can lead me to act in advance of my voluntary decisions. A disposition in this particular sense is, as John Locke put it, I quote, forward and ready upon every occasion to break into action, end quote. And we might even claim, following other early modern philosophers, that an inclination is a disposition that possesses a drive to realise itself, and that will realise itself unless something else comes to impede that realisation. A comprehensive theory of mental powers, then, will have to account for the specificity of inclination, of mental dispositions in this particular tendential sense. In the light of recent developments in the metaphysics of powers, however, we may think ourselves already to possess at least the grounds of such an account of inclinations. For in their 2011 Getting Causes from Powers, Stephen Mumford and Rani Lil Anjum have argued that all dispositions, and not just mental dispositions, mental powers or dispositions, are to be thought as tendencies or inclinations, and that such tendencies or inclinations, Mumford and Anjum also argue that such tendencies or inclinations have a sui generis modality irreducible to and inexplicable by traditional ideas of necessity or possibility. Furthermore, and this is absolutely crucial for me, although they aim to characterise powers in general, and not just mental powers, they argue that we have direct experience of inclinations or tendencies as possessing a sui generis modality in our subjective experience, and in fact, more precisely, in our own experience of agency. Now, in what follows, I respond to these arguments, but I do so in a particular light, one that I hope will seem less strange at the end of the paper than it may initially appear. For I want to show how the tradition of 19th century French philosophy can help us to assess Mumford and Angelou's claims, and consequently to help us think about being inclined, to help us think about inclinations. 
After having initially reviewed Mumford and Anjum's arguments in the first section of the paper, in the second I turn to the work of Pierre Mendibiron and Félix Havisson, two pivotal figures in the spiritualist tradition in French philosophy. I turn to them in order to develop the claim that an experience of being inclined of a particular and irreducible modality of dispositions is indeed available to us in subjective experience but in the particular phenomena of habits, not within agency in general. Chavisson's 1838 text De l'habitudon provides a phenomenology of habit as inclination and a metaphysics that attempts to make the phenomenological facts of inclination intelligible. And both this phenomenology and this metaphysics, as I hope to show, have much to teach contemporary philosophy. So that's the plan. First section, the dispositional modality concerning um, Mumford and Jim's work. Uh, yeah, the handout, there are quotations for each of the uh, sections that should serve to orient you in the, the paper, hopefully. Without explicitly addressing the distinction that I've just sketched between dispositions as general capacities and dispositions as inclinations, dispositions in a tendential sense one might say, in Getting Causes from Powers, Mumford and Anjum argue that all dispositions including including what I've just sketched as mere capacities, have, I quote, an irreducible sui generis modality, something between pure necessity and pure contingency, and that is reducible to neither, end quote. Dispositions in general tend towards their manifestations without necessitating them. And although I quote again the idea of something irreducibly tending towards certain outcomes has not attracted many adherents in modern philosophy, it is the core modal notion. Dispositions then involve inclination, being inclined. To be sure, the word tendency figures more prominently than inclination in getting causes from powers. But in the paper, I treat these terms as synonymous. The slightly different ways that we may use tendency in philosophy and in everyday speech, the slightly different ways in which we may use tendency and inclination are not in the end philosophically significant, although we could talk about that. In this, I follow, in effect, Mumford and Anjou, for they recognise precedents in the history of philosophy to their own discussion of tendencies, particularly in Thomas Aquinas, who, of course, had much to say about inclinatio. This is also to say that if um, Mumford and Anjum's metaphysics of tendencies or inclination is an innovation, it is, as they themselves admit, I quote, the reassertion of a very old innovation. So there's a, they recognise that there's a, a connection to the history of philosophy here. I'll return to this historical question, but getting causes from powers presents this innovation concerning the dispositional modality concerning inclinations. <laughs> within the framework of an account of causation according to a realist theory of powers or dispositions. Dispositions only incline towards their manifestations, which is to say that in causation there is something other than necessitation at work. Now the third chapter of the book provides an argument, one that owes much to Elizabeth Anscombe, against necessitarian theories of causation. Now everyone, philosopher and non-philosopher alike, recognises that a particular causal process, such as my striking the match on the box to light it, can be prevented by other external factors. Rain, for example, can prevent the match from being lit. In any causal process, the cause or the event A could be present, but the typical production of B, which we might call the effect, could be interrupted, diverted or swamped by other factors. In this incontrovertible and simple fact, Mumford and Anjum found find grounds for a thesis. Can be, for me, it's quite disorienting um, reading this thesis. And it's so sort of worryingly simple, the facts and experience to which they uh, appeal. We defend the bold thesis, they write, that the possibility of prevention leaves no room for any kind of necessity in causal production. The possibility of B not happening because it is prevented by C or D means that no necessity, logical, metaphysical or even physical, is to be found in the causal process. In other words, A can be sufficient for the production of B without it being a sufficient condition of B, i.e. without it producing B necessarily. Why? Well, because external factors can intervene. 
to prevent the occurrence of B. Appealing to the obvious to advance a bold thesis is, of course, a peculiar enterprise, but Mumford and Andrew attempt to flesh out this appeal by offering a logical test for causal necessity. The logical test is one of antecedent strengthening. If a causal process is necessary, then the conditional sentence describing that process, um, e.g. if I strike the match then it will light, will remain true regardless of any strengthening of the antecedent to include other factors, e.g. for example, um, if I strike the match in the driving rain, then it will light. We'll find no causal conditional statement that can survive such an antecedent strengthening test, precisely because, as, as the authors suppose, there's no natural process in the world that cannot somehow or other be prevented. Now here I don't want to assess the logic of this antecedent strength, strengthening test, and it should be noted that E.J. Lowe has, um, has done so in a, in, a, in a short recent piece in Analysis. Nor do I wish to assess Mumford and Anjum's use of vectors in their attempt to uh, picture and model causation that's been criticised from many perspectives over the last year. My focus instead is simply on the idea of tendency or inclination that the authors contrast with necessitation. And here it is crucial to underline that their anti-necessitarian arguments tell us nothing about what the purported dispositional modality is. At this stage, at least, the idea of a disposition tending towards its manifestation, its being inclined towards that manifestation, is conceived merely negatively. A tendency is a disposition that does not necessitate its manifestation. In fact, if we abstract from their basic dispositional realism, the fact that dispositions are out there, the claim that dispositions are out there, as it were, a position for which Mumford has been arguing um, since his dispositions of 1998. So far, nothing of any substance separates um, Mumford and Anjum's new claims in getting causes from powers from some kind of probabilistic theory of causation, whatever exactly that probabilistic theory of causation may be. The difference here is just a matter of different words, tendency or probability, to make the same move against causal necessitarianism. Indeed, when the authors attempt to say something about the dispositional modality by showing how it contrasts with traditional ideas of possibility, they account for this difference in terms of probability. It's almost as if they can't say anything else. As soon as they try to say something about the dispositional modality, they end up talking the language of probabilities. I quote, dispositions, well, dispositions are to be distinguished from abstract logical possibility because they are, I quote, reliable, tend to manifest, and disposed to happen with a non-negligible probability." Unquote. Now, to be sure, Mumford and Anjum are perfectly aware, more or less perfectly aware, of the negative nature of their initial claims concerning inclination or the dispositional modality. And they openly discuss the problem of what we can meaningfully say of dispositionality as a modal category, if it is irreducible to the more familiar modalities of necessity and possibility. The problem is all the more acute in that they hold that being inclined is the most primitive or basic form of modality in things. Dispositionality, they argue, is, I quote, the core modality from which the other two standard modal operators draw their sense as being limit cases on a spectrum. Our idea of natural possibility, as distinct from logical possibility, derives from the dispositions that things have, in that for an event to be naturally possible, something must have the disposition to produce that event. And when we consider those dispositions whose manifestation is less and less frequent, then I quote, we reach the idea of a pure contingency as an ideal limiting case. Similarly, at the other end of this spectrum of dispositionality, our idea of natural necessity, again as distinct from logical necessity, is an extrapolation from, I quote, an idea of what dependably happens with hardly any exceptions. And this originates, end quote, and this originates in what is disposed or inclined to happen. This account of necessity would not, to be sure, satisfy the Humean looking for the origin of the idea of necessary connection, but the idea of a modal spectrum according to which dispositionality is always a matter of degree is, I think, one of the most interesting claims that Mumford and Anjum have to make about dispositionality. 
And, as I'll try to show, this claim is a clear question in the work of Havisson. How, in any case, to say something positive about what dispositionality actually is? What can we say about tendency? What can we say about being inclined? Chapter 9 of Getting Causes from Powers addresses this question head-on with the argument that dispositionality is a primitive concept, primitive in the sense of an unanalyzable, known directly from experience. It's not anything we can analyze, but we've got a direct and immediate experience of uh, this form of tendency. Where? Well, in our own experience of power, you know, if not in the relations of objects to themselves, if not in things themselves, well, in ourselves, in our own experience of power. So a large part of Mumford and Angel's claim that we, we have access to dispositionality in ourselves consists in the development of Locke's, John Locke's suggestion that we have an experience of power in agency against Hume's later attempted refutation of such a suggestion, first in the inquiry concerning human understanding and then in the appendix to the treatise um, Human Nature, Hume seems to become progressively worried by this idea that in fact we may have an impression of force, power or energy in our actions as Locke had suggested, whereas he doesn't seem to take it very seriously at the beginning. All we experience in agency, Hume claims, so in the inquiry we have this long section devoted to the definition, as it were, of, of, of this suggestion. All we experience in agency, Hume claims, is the constant conjunction of a volition, an act of will, with a physical movement that immediately succeeds that volition. And thus, I quote, no internal impression has an apparent energy more than external objects have. End quote. Yet Hume's scepticism concerning force in agency is conditioned by the volitionism that he inherits from a range of early modern thinkers, and particularly Malpache. It is dependent on, in other words, a separation of willing and the physical movement, or the, the mental movement, as two events consecutive in time. And it's precisely this implausible, I quote, to quote Mumford and Angel, this implausible separation that they propose to undermine with a reunificationist accounts of agency, for which they claim to find resources not only in Locke, but also such strange lists that they, they produce. But um, Locke, Heidegger, uh, more recently, more understandable, in the work of Brian O'Shaughnessy and um, Tom Baldwin. Now, key to this reunificationist account of agency is the view that there's a simultaneous simultaneity of volition and acts, and not a precedent of the one in relation to the other. And one chapter of Getting Causes from Powers had already argued, has already argued, that causation in general is a matter of simultaneity and not a matter of succession. But they're appealing to our subjective experience of agency to say, well, look, we can actually see, see uh, experience this uh, simultaneity directly. When you will to raise your arm, it's not that I quote, you will to raise your arm and then sometime later your arm rises. The temporal priority condition loses all plausibility here. Unquote. It certainly loses at least some of its credibility when we consider that we have to maintain the will to move our arm all the way through the actual moving of the arm. And that's at the same time as the moving of the arm. On this basis, for Mumford and Angen, where Hume in the end goes wrong is that he confuses willing with wishing. I'm sure you've heard the, the, the argument and the claim before. He confuses willing with wishing or idle desires. Genuine willing is simultaneous with the bodily movement and need not, in fact, I quote, be a distinct and observable mental episode, end quote. In the experience of resistance, however slight that resistance may be, there is an experience of force or active power, and not just of a conjunction of discrete events, the willing and then the movement. Activity and passivity, force and resistance are here inseparable. Our sense of proprioception, the sense of efforts irreducible to the other five senses, shows, they argue, that they are integrated closely, force and resistance. They're integrated closely, such that they are no ordinary separable relata. To follow their example, lifting an empty box that I thought was heavy, my body adjusts itself immediately to the amount of effort required in order to meet the resistance. Here I quote, the willing and the movements must be an entirely integrated process. It could not be, for instance, that the volition has already been and gone. One could not successfully act it out. 
if it had, because it is only once one has the proprioceptive information available that one knows exactly what must be done. All this to say that there's a direct experience of power in agency. That's the claim. But here's the, the, the second claim, which is even more fundamental from Mumford and Angelou's uh, argument. This direct experience of force is not the force, uh, not a direct experience of the force of necessity, but a, an experience of this force with a peculiar modal value that is, they call the dispositional modality. Why is that the case? Well, they rely on an idea of failure. Because my actions can be defeated, but my intentions can be defeated, that's precisely why there is not, there's no necessitation in voluntary agency. My power is oriented towards a goal, like any disposition, but this power, like that of any other power, can be defeated or prevented from manifesting itself. When, for example, I try to push over a wall, these are their examples, and we may think that something's going wrong with these examples. <laughs> when I, for example, I try to push over a well-built wall, or I quote, resist the power of an oncoming train, quote, <laughs> our experience shows us that, I quote again, <laughs> we do not have enough power to overcome some obstacle. Such an experience does not illustrate causal necessitation, end quote. This is to say that, I quote, our actions only dispose or tend towards their outcomes, never guaranteeing them. And everyone knows what this means. <laughs> Given the importance of these claims for Mumford and Angem's project, I mean, it really is the, 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 the core of the project, at least insofar as getting causes from powers, is concerned with this idea of the dispositional modality, because here, in our subjective experience, according to their account, is where we actually have a positive experience of this dispositional modality. If we, without this, they've got nothing positive to say about it at all. Now, it's disappointing that Getting Causes from Powers offers little more than a brief sketch of their own phenomenology of agencies involving direct experience of the dispositional modality. Even if we are sympathetic to their reunificationist sketch of agency and accept that there is some direct experience of force in agency, their appeal to the allegedly obvious fact of the dispositional modality is hardly convincing. First, it's hard to see how the appeal to the possible failure of my intentions provides what Mumford and Anjum are explicitly looking for, an account of what the dispositional modality is rather than what it is not. We remain with the idea that the dispositional modality is dispositional because the manifestation, my arm moving, or my stopping the train, to use their example, does not have to occur. We, we haven't advanced in terms of saying something positive about the dispositional modality. We've just changed the domain in which we're talking. We're now talking about voluntary agency rather than uh, voluntary causation rather than causation in the world but we've still not got a direct experience of something positive happening. Certainly, we now have the claim, at least, that we know or feel this dispositionality in our actions, but there's no positive description of what this feeling or knowledge is. I feel only that my intentions will not necessarily be realised. Consequently, Mumford and Anjum's appeal to the obvious seems defenceless against the response that I have a sense that my intentions will not be realised only because I've encountered failure in the past. Moreover, it becomes clear that from the beginning to the end of their project, Mumford and Andrew operate with a notion of tendency or inclination that is extremely thin, precisely because it has no positive content. Whereas, as we have seen, early modern philosophers have spoken of tendencies as a particular type of capacity that is ready to break into action or that will manifest itself as long as nothing com comes to impede its realisation, Mumford and Anjum state only that a tendency is a capacity whose manifestation might not occur. Their claims that they are reasserting an old innovation in philosophy require substantial qualification. Section 2. Necessity in... Um, it's a 19th century French philosopher, Pierre Mendibiron. Necessity in Mendibiron's reunificationist account of agency. 
the point here of this section is that if we read the work of men to be heart, we're going to have I contend we're going to have good grounds for thinking that in fact in agency we experience necessity and not the dispositional modality. That will lead on in the third section to the question of well, can we apprehend anything like the dispositional modality in our experience if it's not to be found in voluntary agency? Second section. Mumford and Andrew claim that their reunificationist conception of agency develops a tradition going back through Reed to Locke. But they admit, um, omit to mention Pierre Mendibiron, whose work in the first decades of the 19th century stands as perhaps the most philosophically rich development of that tradition. It is really a scandal that uh, Mendibiron's work has not been translated into English. I mean, I'm sure there'd be such a buzz in Hume studies if, if it were translated. There are a couple of articles that have been written on the relation already of, of Mendibiron to Hume, but it's, it's very strange that there is no English translation of it. Now, the claim that we have a direct experience of power and agency has, in fact, its most developed historical precedent in the work of Mendibiron. But what I want to show briefly here is how the French philosopher gives us good reason to think that the modality of voluntary agency involves necessity rather than inclination or tendency. In this context, there's no better way to approach Mendibiron's ideas than by means of his critique of Hume's sceptical arguments in section 7 of the inquiry, this the first inquiry. This critique first appears in Buchan's prize-winning 1807 work De la perception immédiate, on immediate apperception. 1807, it's a time when Buchan was just coming into his own as a philosopher. Now, Buchan takes up three points of Hume's argument in order to un unveil and attack the presuppositions that underlie it. First, Hume sets up his sceptical analysis by arguing that the fact that the motion, the movement of my arm, follows the command of the will, uh, I quote, the fact that the motion follows the command of the will is a matter of common experience, like other natural events. What's Hume said here? Well, he's saying, he's considering inner experience, the relation of the will to the body, on the model of outer experience and the relations between objects. This, Bihar argues, is a naturalistic prejudice that deforms the entirety of Hume's philosophy. I'm sure Hume would just say, well, that's right, that's what I think. And Hume has certain very well-advertised, almost naturalistic commitments in, in this regard. Bihar argues that the difference between inner and outer experience is radical, and that conscious experience must be considered from a genuinely first-person perspective. Consideration of our own experience reveals, he contends, that the most fundamental or primitive fact, le fait primitif, of consciousness is the unity of will and resistance. But this fact is not a fact that is not proper to the world of objects, and it is not known by means of perception, by common experience in Hume's terms, but rather by an immediate apperception. This immediate apperception, what is it? Well, in one word, it's effort. This immediate apperception is effort, which is the immediate unity of will and resistance. In Mendes-Buchan's voluntarist psychology, effort is in fact the measure and the extent of conscious awareness. I'm only aware when I try as it were. Second, second point that uh, Mendes-Buchan highlights in Hume's sceptical analysis of voluntary agency in section 7 of the first inquiry. Second, concerning the influence of volitions over the organs of the body, Hume writes that, I quote, this influence can never be foreseen from any apparent energy or power in the cause which connects it with the effect and renders the one an infallible consequence of the other, end quote. The argument in separating volition from movement is that we have no experience of a causal relation or necessary connection underlying the temporal succession of the two terms. Yet for Bihar, I quote, the relation of causality is completely different to that of succession, end quote. And the presupposition that causality, if it exists, must be a matter of succession is another unjust unjustifiable motivation for the scepticism Hume professes. The causal force or power in our action is not prior to the effect, but is rather present in it. I quote, the internal energy, the internal energy of the cause is directly felt in the effect of the movement produced. The idea then that causation in agency is not a matter of succession, but rather simultaneity, 
is one already advanced by Mendy Bihar at the beginning of the 19th century. There's a significant difference, however, between Mendy Bihar and getting causes from powers. Mumford and Anjum claim the non-successive nature of agential causation as the type and exemplar of causation in general, including causal relations between objects. Mendy Bihar, in contrast, holds the more human position that worldly causal processes are successive and that there's no necessary connection to be found in them. That is, Bihar never comes to question whether what we describe as causation in the world is also non-successive. Third point that, that Bihar attacks in Hume's analysis. Third, Hume argues that, I quote, we are so far from being immediately conscious of how the mind affects the body that it must forever escape our most diligent inquiry. End quote. We know neither why only some of our bodily organs can be directed by the soul, nor how, nor do we know how the soul affects the parts that it can direct, particularly when we consider what we, I quote, learn from autonomy, namely that the immediate object of power in voluntary motion is not the member itself, my arm, which is moved, but certain muscles and nerves and animal spirits, and perhaps something still more minute and unknown. We might think we feel we move our arm, but in physiological reality, our will does not have to act on the limb on, as a whole, but it has to act, first of all, on the brain and the nervous system, Hume argues, in, uh, in relying on the, the arguments of anatomy, but of course anatomy always presupposes a corpse. So, Action, my, raising my arm presupposes a whole host of physiological intermediaries. I've got no experience of those in um, my experience of what I think is moving my arm. Now, Bihon responds by attacking the claim that we have to know how the will moves the body in order for us to know that it moves the body. We may as well claim that we can see only if we know the physiological processes according to which we see. And the claim presupposes the possibility of taking a first person and a third person perspective on our experience at one and the same time. But it is precisely such a third person and anatomical perspective on the body that Bihon comes to displace within reflection on the nature of voluntary action. When moving my arm, I do indeed will to move my arm and, and act directly upon it. But this arm is not the physiological object the doctor examines, but rather my arm is belonging to, and this is Bihon's phrase, le corps to my own body, to my pre-objective body, of which I am aware in what he calls internal apperception. It's no exaggeration to say, following the French phenomenologist Michel Henry, that I quote, Mendy Buchan is the first philosopher to have understood the derivative and secondary character of any objective conception of the body. End quote. Where are we? Well, for Mendy Buchan, there is an immediate feeling, or more precisely, an immediate apperception of power in its unity with resistance. And the resistant term is not the body as object, but le corps Here, I in no way presume to have convinced you of the truth of Buchan's claims, and it should be noted that Buchan himself spends much of his three decades of philosophical activity ceaselessly reworking his approach to what he calls le fait primitif of consciousness, the primitive fact of consciousness without ever being sufficiently convinced by his own work himself to accept its publication. Mendy Bihar is the author of a single book, as one commentator has memorably put it, and this book he never wrote. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, the, the collected works, you know, there were 15 volumes, and apart from his prize-winning essays, he won several prizes in the first decade of the 19th century, Berlin, Copenhagen, Paris, um, they, they were published, but he could never manage to Publish his 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 uh, masterwork, and he he tried to rewrite it seven or eight times and never managed. If you're interested in him as a as a figure, there's a hundred page philosophical portrait of Mendes Bihar by Aldous Huxley of all people, and who characterises him as a complete and utter neurotic to incredible levels. It's really entertaining um, philosophical portrait. What I do want to show here, however is that for Bihar, the force of the will and its unity with resistance is a matter of necessity. As he argues in responding to Hume, I quote, the only necessary relation, liaison in French, is that which primitively occurs between a living force and resistance, or inertia, end quote. Certainly, within the peculiar identity and difference of the unity of will and resistance, 
the necessity is not a necessary connection. It's not connection because it's not connection be between two separable things. But it's necessity nonetheless. When I'm willing to raise my arm, my arm by necessity rises. Of course, I may be wearing a straitjacket and my arm will not move in the way I intended. Yet if there is resistance, in other words, if there's will, my effort will necessarily be having some effect, even if merely microscopic, even I'm just pressing my own flesh as it were. If there's no movement at all, as in the obvious case of paralysis, what's going on? Well, Buchan's got a solution to this problem which you may think is radical. The paralysed person is not willing. The paralysed person is merely wishing or desiring to move his arm and not willing to do so because will involves resistance. The point of all this is that Menzbihan sees necessity in a reunificationist account of agency, whereas Manfred and Angelum see tendency or inclination, this thin notion of tendency or inclination that was, that was seen. How then would the French philosopher respond to the authors of getting causes from powers? I think he would accuse, and I think he would be right to do so, Manfred and Angelum of having conflated the intention of my action with the immediate object of my will. In my action, my intention, of course, can fail. But this takes nothing away from the necessity of my will having an immediate effect on my body, and by extension, the world. That is, Mendebuchon helps us to see that Manfred and Angelum base their analysis on, in the end, what's nothing but a secondary phenomenon, whether or not my intentions succeed or not. And they pass over the original fundamental or primitive modality of dispositions. One could put it this way, I can fail in my intentions, but I cannot fail to will what I will. I mean, perhaps there's much more to say about that, particularly in terms of the contemporary philosophy of action to try and unpack that, but I think it's something to go on at least. Third section. I've just said that with Men's Behind that um, in voluntary agency there is an experience of um, necessity, but not this, uh, not the dispositional modality or inclination or tendency in any sense. Does that mean that there's no experience of inclination or tendency in any sense to be had in our subjective experience? Well, what's interesting in the history of 19th century French philosophy is that one of Mendibiron's followers, for want of a better word, who's a very a significant philosopher in his own rights, takes Mendebuchon's philosophy and extends it in a certain sense to argue that that there's a continuum from voluntary agency all the way down to the less conscious and less voluntary aspects of our experience. And it's that continuum is not just a matter, I'm explaining what I'm going to say in the next four or five pages, but it's, that continuum is not just a matter of something being less and less voluntary. You know, it's not some. It's not just a question of something being becoming more and more passive and less and less active. It's a question of a spontaneous tendency or inclination taking over from conscious voluntary experience. Where do we find this form of tendency or inclination, which, as Habasan will try to assert, has its own peculiar modal value? Where do we find it? Well, in the phenomena of habits. Of course, the idea that an account of inclination as irreducible to causal necessity, which is part of the claim that I'm making, can be gained from an analysis of habits may seem counterintuitive. Almost certainly will do. If, as is often the case in modern philosophy, we think of acquired habits as mechanical and lifeless, if we think of motor habit in particular, as in Henri Bergson's memorable phrase, le résidu fossilisé d'une activité spirituelle, the fossilised residue of a spiritual activity. Great phrase, but poor interpretation of habit, according to Ravisson. Then nothing would seem to separate habits from the apparent necessity of mechanical causation. But it's precisely this modern conception of habits as a mechanical principle of action that Ravisson opposes when reflecting on habit and on motor habits in particular. An action, say learning how to drive or pronounce the words of a foreign language by means of its repetition, becomes, as Ravisson characteristically puts it, de moins en moins volontaire, less and less voluntary, less and less conscious, 
but it does not, for all that I quote, become the mechanical effect of an external impulse, but rather the effect of an inclination that follows from the will. End quote. The acquisition of a motor habit does not consist in the transformation of an originally <coughs> voluntary movement into a dead mechanism. It rather involves more of the movement becoming inclined. It's not even the case, as we might be tempted to think, that more and more parts of the movement become mechanical, and that more and more of a movement escapes voluntary control. It's rather that more and more of the movement takes on a life of its own, a life or spontaneity that is continuous with, rather than antithetical to, voluntary decision. This life or spontaneity is precisely what Havisson thinks of as inclination or tendency, as a pre-theoretical orientation to goals or possibilities that were previously posited in the mind. This inclination is irreducible to the iron rule of mechanical necessity, but it's also a matter of realised or incorporated rather than simply intellectual possibility. I quote, In reflection and will, the end of movement is an idea, an ideal to be accomplished. It is a possibility to be realised, but as the end becomes fused with the movement in the acquisition of the habit, and the movement with the tendency, possibility, the ideal, is realised in it. Mendipirant, as we have seen, had argued that in effort there is a direct experience of the force of the will and its unity with resistance. Ravisson develops Piron's position to argue that in the decline of efforts, in the acquisition of a habit, there is a direct experience of this voluntary force becoming less and less voluntary and more and more spontaneous. In habit, there is a direct experience of the force of habit as a function of tendency or inclination. Certainly, this development of Bihan's argument involves a methodological difficulty, for it involves the attempt to describe, within conscious philosophical reflection, what, by its nature, begins to transcend conscious awareness, namely inclination. Yet, Havisson appeals to our experience of becoming habituated, of becoming inclined, as an experience wherein we at least glimpse a kind of vital spontaneity of inclination that is continuous with the will and consciousness. This vital spontaneity is what Havisson describes as an obscure activity, <laughs> obscure because no longer wholly voluntary and conscious, that is, I quote, equally, equally opposed to mechanical fatality and to reflective freedom. It's precisely for this reason that realist or idealist, physical or rationalist approaches to habit will struggle to offer viable accounts of habit and its acquisition. I could say more about that, but I won't um, go into uh, his his arguments against physiological realist interpretations of habit and his argument against intellectual accounts of habit. You see the same dialectic in later French thought in the work of Merleau-Ponty, for example. What happens in the acquisition of habit? Well, Habitat understands the acquisition of habit according to as it were, a descending scale. Voluntary actions become, can become skills, which to some degree involve self-propelling tendencies. These actions in turn can become tendencies in a strong sense, whereby, to paraphrase Thomas Reed, the action is not just easy for me, but not doing it can make me uneasy. And these tendencies can finally degenerate into the almost complete involuntary phenomena that we know of as ticks. Yet motor habits can become less and less voluntary, less and less conscious, only because, as Havisson argues, there is, in fact, an infinitely graduated scale between the freedom of thoughts and will and the inertia of matter. It's in this sense that he can claim that reflection on habits serves as a philosophical method. If you want to do philosophy, Havisson is arguing, you need to look at the, at the phenomena of habits. In the same way that he was a, a student of Schelling, he studied with Schelling, for a while um, in Munich. And earlier Schelling had claimed, look, if you want to do philosophy, if you want to understand the relation of mind to world, you've got to look at art. Habitat is, 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 is pointing us in a different direction. Habit can serve as a philosophical method. I quote, the only real method for the estimation by convergent infinite series of the relation real in itself, but incommensurable in the understanding of nature and will. The experience of habit acquisition is the experience of degrees of freedom and voluntary activity, and it is thus the experience of a continuum that underlies our abstract Cartesian oppositions of reflective thought to extended matter. Now, this conception of a continuum corresponds, as, as, as signalled before, 
Two, Mumford and Anjum's claims about the dispositional modality forming a spectrum that accommodates material de re necessity and physical possibility. There's what for me were very interesting parallels between uh, Mumford and Anjum's idea of the, the dispositional modality as being called with Havisson's project. Moreover, like Mumford and Anjum, Havisson argues that inclination or tendency is the most fundamental of the modalities, not only a continuum, but uh, it, it's, it's prior in a sense to any idea of material necessity or material poss possibility. And interestingly enough, Havisson, perhaps for different reasons, but he also holds an anti-necessitarian position concerning nature and natural causation. What might look like dead mechanical necessity at the lowest levels of inanimate nature is still an expression of inclination or tendency, he argues. He recruits Leibniz uh, for these arguments. By the most powerful of analogies, he claims, we can deduce that the continuum underlying the relation of mind to body is pre present throughout nature as a whole. And thus that inclination is present in the natural world from the ground up. If that idea of analogy seems sort of slightly, a slightly outlandish way of doing philosophy, and Mumford and Anjum rely on it too, because they, they want to say, look, we've got a direct experience of, of the, the dispositional modality in ourselves. And by analogy, we can um, posit that it's out there in the world and the relations between things. So Havisson's claim is that inclination in a certain weakened sense are, is present in nature from the ground up. Consequently, Havisson is able to claim in terms that are evidently Leibnizian that the primordial law and the most general form of being is the tendency to persevere in the very actuality that constitutes being. Habitual motor, te motor tendencies are but a higher, more intelligent expression of this basic law of being. And conversely, that's looking up the scale from inanimate nature to the human being. But conversely, on this basis, it becomes possible to claim that what we think of as the laws of nature are, in the end, just consolidated habits. If we want to claim that tendencies are present all the way down through nature, what looks like the iron rule of necessity is uh, still a certain form of tendency, which is what Leibniz wants, wants to argue. And we find, we find the arguments in, uh, in a certain form in, uh, in Sheldrake, uh, in his ideas concerning, concerning nature. That, that, you know, nature is just a set of consolidated habits. The, uh, I wrote to him, uh, Sheldrake, asking him if he'd ever read any 19th century philosophy. But he didn't get these parallels between the respective projects of Chavisson and the authors of Getting Causes from Powers, however, are just that, parallels, because Mumford and Anjum advanced merely a negative notion of tendency or inclinations in terms of their manifestations not being necessary, whereas the French philosopher offers a more positive notion of being inclined. Mumford and Anjum are right to underline that this dispositional modality is primitive, sui generis, and unanalyzable, but Chavisson, I contend, points us in a more convincing way to a positive experience of inclination or tendencies. Mumford and Anjum attempt to find something positive in failure, but fail in this attempt, whereas Chavisson points us to a direct experience of being, as it were, carried away by an inclination. To be sure, and reading Mumford and Anjum has made me think much more philosophically and stringently about Havisson's philosophical project. To be sure, the problem still remains of what we can say about this positive experience of inclination, given its primitive and sui generis nature. What, in other words, is an inclination? How to understand this allegedly positive fact of experience? In providing a response to these questions, Havisson's phenomenology of habit becomes a metaphysical interpretation of inclination. He thinks inclination deliberately as a being inclined, as we've seen him argue, I'm not sure if I did cite this before, but as we've seen him argue, inclinations, I quote, become more and more the form, the way of being, even the very being of the organs of the body when I acquire a habit. 
That's to say that incarnation as, as an obscure activity is conceived by Havisant as a way of being, as a phrase he uses, a way of being. But, but this phrase in, in Havisant's hands seems to presuppose a difference between being and beings, a difference be that's no ordinary difference between two things. Although there's no room to discuss it further in this paper, Havisant presents us with an option that perhaps offers an alternative to uh, much of the discourse in the contemporary metaphysics of powers. And it may or may not be Aristotelian, but the claim is that dispositions, powers, inclinations are not extra things or extra properties. In Kantian terms, dispositions are not real predicates. They're nothing on the level of things. They're something other than that. To, to conclude, my argument concerning the claims of Mumford and Anjum in getting position and power amounts simply to this. If we want to find a positive experience of disposition and modality, irreducible to the traditional modalities of necessity and possibility, then we first have to examine our actual experience of inclination. It's not voluntary to voluntary agency in general that we need to look if we're trying to find an idea of tendency, but we sh would it not be better to look at actual tendencies or inclinations. Now at one stage in their argument Mumford and Anjum do stumble upon this distinction. They criticise volitionism and it's a probable assertion that all my bodily movements when for example playing football or driving a car are go governed by particular acts of will. It's implausible to think that everything I do especially in intense situations is governed by acts of will. That's, an, that's a, uh, a point that they raise against volitionism. As a, as a position in the philosophy of mind. A volition they hold is not, I quote, necessary for an act to be intentional. So there can be intentional acts that do not have conscious or explicit acts of volition. Which is to say that in action there's a form of intention or intelligence that cannot be reduced to explicit acts of the mind. But Mumford and Anjum do not develop this point by offering any kind of phenomenology of skilled or habitual experience. And they do not explicitly describe the difference between capacities in general and inclinations in particular. This, I contend, is their most basic error. If we begin with inclinations, that's their most basic error. But if, on the other hand, with Chavisson, if we begin with inclinations in the narrow sense, in the tendential sense, we do not have to remain, however, within the confines of, of, of a philosophy of only a particular type or subset of powers. With Chavisson, it's not that we, we look at inclinations and, then we, and that we've only got something to say about inclinations in this narrow sense of dispositions in the, in, a, in, a, in the tendential sense because he goes on to argue that all dispositions even as we've seen even in um, all the way down through to inanimate nature all dispositions are to some degree a function of being inclined thank, thank you. you thank you <laughs> <laughs> yeah.